adversaries are relentless, and they're only getting smarter, faster, and more sophisticated. Knowing their game is the only way to beat them. That's why we're here. Learn what it takes to protect against even the most sophisticated attacks. Welcome to the Adversary Universe podcast. So welcome to another episode of the Adversary Universe podcast. The Nexus, where geopolitics and cyberspace converge. And then we oh, have, that's we, new. We need to have like a bunch of, uh, it is new. We need to have a bunch of sound effects when I say that. Oh. This podcast really isn't going to get off the ground until you get the uh, dance hall laser noise in there. Burr, 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 burr. Do, do, do. <laughs> Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> For those of you still listening. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of lasers. Speaking of lasers. Um, I'm your co-host, Christian Rodriguez, and with me is the nucleus of this podcast programming, Mr. Adam Myers. How are you, sir? I'm great. How are you doing? You know what? It's here. Um, we're doing this. Uh, we have a lot to talk about today. This is an interesting topic, um, you know, as we as we walk through some of this tradecraft and the topic today, uh, we just want to make sure that uh, everyone understands that there's a um, there's some really great content and context around um, a history um, that we want to shed some light on. And so really excited to talk about um today's episode um with you uh, adam i know that you have a lot of really great content that we discussed before i think that this is going to be um you know a topic that um really puts some perspective uh as we start getting our feet wet and carefully treading through decades of political and uh digital pools of iran's ever evolving cyber warfare strategy and so we'll get into the turbulent aftermath of the uh, Iran hostage crisis to uh, some some shifts in Iran's government uh, landscape, uh, Iran's digital presence. is It's clearly something that we don't want to underestimate. And I know that there's a lot of topics and a lot of history, rather, that we'd like to cover before we even get into some of the active groups that we're tracking with the counter-adversary operations team. Um, so with that said, what's going on in Iran right now? Well, it's uh, been a dynamic couple of weeks, obviously, and I think Iran has been playing a lot of uh, geopolitics in the region, certainly, and, and we're, we're seeing that in some of the campaigns that, that have popped up over the last few weeks, and you know, I think we'll continue to see quite a bit coming out of Iran, uh, just to put it in perspective, when you know, we're, we're looking at what's happening with the conflict between Israel and uh, Hamas in, in the Gaza region. And there's been a number of things that have happened just in the last, you know, since that, that conflict really escalated with uh, groups like Spectral Kitten, which is one of the threat actors. And I, I should note that before we go any further, we track threat actors from Iran who operate at the behest of the nation state or in the interest of the nation state as Kitten. And we have a number of threat actors with with regard to that. And, um, you know, as you look across the the broad landscape, sometimes they pop pop up and disappear. Um, The Iranian threat actors are also pretty well known for using fake hacktivist personas in order to kind of uh, launder what what they're doing but i i think we're uh we're getting ahead of ourselves here yeah uh yeah, we yeah. maybe we should uh we should yeah. start with the fact that we track a number of threat actors out of iran um banished kitten charming kitten chrono kitten 
haywire kitten, imperial kitten, um, and probably about 10 more. So yeah. all, all said and done, there is uh, significant activity in Iran. And I think it's kind of interesting to see how that, that happened. Where, where did they all come from? Because, yeah. Yeah. you know, when we first started CrowdStrike, there was maybe a kitten. And there was some pretty interesting geopolitical events that happened in the uh, late 2000s, uh, early 2010s that shaped a lot of the behavior and and we've kind of watched them grow up in fact uh we call them kittens but when we first started looking for threat actors uh, or looking at threat actors i should say from iran we were really thinking uh persian cat but they were so Mm -hmm. immature in the early days that we we thought what's an immature cat but a kitten and that's oh, where that's where the name came from so interesting and immaturity by the way being a reference to their um cyber prowess i'm assuming well just their tactics and techniques their tactics. right yep. as we were looking at uh, you know china and russia and some of the more advanced threat actors the early days of iranian threat actor activity really was some real basic malware mm-hmm. and a lot of pen testing and a lot of targeting of PHP and and kind of web-based attacks, which was not as sophisticated as some of the other things we were seeing at that point in time. Mm, yeah. But you have to understand where the you know Iranian thinking around cyber capabilities came from. And you can look at North Korea and go back to you know the the early 2000s and Kim Jong-un himself, you know, a lot of what he was thinking and saying pertained to the asymmetric capabilities of cyber uh, tooling and, and cyber espionage and offensive cyber capabilities. And he understood that that was something that would be very powerful for North Korea. And China had been, you know, looking at how can they leverage cyber espionage to improve. And we, we had a whole episode on this, right. But yeah. improve their, their competitiveness and to help state owned enterprises you know, really uh, dominate various markets. And Russia has been doing information warfare since the early 1900s. And they were doing cyber warfare, you know, probably since the 80s. And there, there's reports of things that the KGB was doing way back in the 80s. And um, so, you know, there's a rich history there. With Iran, there was this kind of watershed moment, I think, for Iran, which was Stuxnet. Remember Stuxnet? Yeah. So it just goes back to 2010, right? Yep. Yeah, I'd say 2009, 2010 was the Stuxnet stuff. And for anybody that uh, some of our newer listeners who might not re- remember that far back in the uh, the cyber lore, you know, Stuxnet was a pretty complex attack. I remember when we started looking at that malware, it was close to a megabyte, I think, if I remember correctly, in yeah. size, which was vastly you know larger than... Uh, many of the tools that we're seeing out there um, at the time. And so when you think about the the actual size, it was, it was something like one and a half megs or something like that. There was a lot of content and there were a lot of things to reverse engineer and analyze. There was all kinds of SQL related things in there. There was um, just, a, just a, a rich mosaic of things to look at. Yeah. And the complexity of it was that it was used we believe to disrupt 
physical devices, actual uh, operational technology, the, the things that I think uh, a lot of people spend time hand-wringing about and getting concerned about, they, th this, this Stuxnet malware was able to jump across air gaps and it was able to program specific hardware, programmable logic controllers related to high-speed centrifuges that are used for the enrichment of uranium. Mm. And yeah. this was a brilliant attack at the time, right? They, uh, it, it didn't just blow everything up as, as somebody might be inclined to try to do. What it did was it would kind of throttle up and down the speed of those centrifuges and burn them out. Uh, much faster than they should have burned out. So yeah, it's it very actually disruptive, basically. It, it was. Yeah. It wasn't even so much disruptive as it degraded the ability of the equipment to do what it needed to do, and it arguably slowed down the ability for Iran to develop nuclear weapons because mm. they're constantly swapping out centrifuges uh, because the the motors were burning out. So pretty, pretty ingenious. But I, you know, when that became public. Everybody probably remembers that Crisis Labs out of, uh, I think it was Hungary, was was involved in finding this thing. And uh, Symantec did a, a deep dive analysis of it uh, back in 2010. But when that happened, that was kind of a, a watershed moment for Iran. That was kind of the realization that, hey, we need to be thinking about the cyber stuff because they just broke all of our really expensive toys. Yeah. And uh, that that's not good, right? So... In 2010, I would say it was kind of the the epoch of the Iranian thinking in, in the cyber domain. And what we see immediately after that was some pretty rudimentary kind of rocks and sticks type um, thinking when it came to how to leverage cyber. And I'll, I'll come to what, what I mean by that in a minute, but... Um, you know, Iran has always had kind of these um, these different ways of thinking about the problem. So up until Stuxnet, I'd say it was really about digital control, right? In, in two, 2000 through 2008, let's say, their concern pertaining to cyber and, and the internet and all of this was really about controlling narrative, controlling, you know, dissent to the, to the regime. They wanted to make sure that people weren't abusing cyber you know space if you will or the internet to share ideas that were not popular with yeah. with the regime there was this uh, a couple of things also happening at that time which i think shaped the iranian thinking so let's start with the first thing was stuxnet right but then they were coming from a period where they had really been leveraging their their capabilities in that domain to try to control the internet and control the spread of ideas we also around 2006 2007 2008 start to see hacktivism becoming very prevalent in iran both pro and anti-regime and hacktivism at that time period right this also aligns with the occupy wall street movement where we started seeing a lot of anonymous activity oh, yeah. and so hacktivism was really kind of going through its um uh, a big shift at that time period. Sure, a lot more media attention, right? Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, yeah. and, and Iranian threat actors got involved in that as well. And then in 2009, you have the Green Movement, which was, you know, the closest uh, I think we've seen in, in a long time to some sort of actual 
regime change, you know, potentially happening or, or some uh, political discourse changing within Iran. And there was a big protest. And I remember that there was a huge movement to enable folks in Iran to communicate what was happening there. Uh, to get that that messaging out on Twitter or through other things, people were standing up VPNs to get the message out because there was you know people protesting in the streets here in the U.S. and, and certainly in Tehran, and so there was there was kind of this culmination of you know digital control, hacktivism, the green movement, and then Stuxnet hits. So mm. between 2008 and 2010, a lot was going on within Iran, and. What we started seeing, so I mentioned the hacktivism. I think this is an important uh, point. In 2010, let's call it, the barrier to entry to understanding what was going on inside of Iran from a cyber perspective was speaking Farsi. Mm. Everything was in the open. There were there were places like Ashayan Digital Forum and all of these kind of Farsi language underground communities where you know, you could go in if you understood Farsi and start communicating with people. Oh, well. After Stuxnet, 2010, 2011, 2012, we start to see some of those hackers in the underground forums getting rid of their um, their hacker identities. Uh, their monikers? So yeah. basically getting rid of those and... Exactly. Going back into and, and by the way, just for clarity, as you know, prior to Stuxnet, you know, we're tracking these groups as jackals, which is you know, for those of you not familiar with the naming conventions, jackals would be considered hacktivist groups that we're tracking here. So, were they all part of the these this overarching jackal community that we were tracking, or were they still part of the kitten? I'll give you an example. In two thousand eight, mm -hmm. let's say. Um, there was a, a hacktivist kind of uh, activity where they defaced the website of the Grand Ayatollah um, Ali al-Sistani. Uh, and it was conducted uh, allegedly, I, I think, by an Emirati hacker, and it triggered a whole series of retaliatory website defacements between domestic Iranian hackers and neighboring countries uh, like the, the Emirates or, or Saudi or um Oman, Jordan, places like that. And this was really kind of when they cut their teeth. It was mm -hmm. like in that 2008 was when a grouping of people who were hackers and geopolitics converged, much like the new tagline you just dropped for this <laughs> podcast, right? And so 2008 was kind of the start of that change. In 2009, you have that green movement. In 2010, you have Stuxnet. And now... Folks that were kind of hackery and and had these hacker identities for you know thick like like the movie hackers almost yep. right like that yeah. kind of identity yeah. they start dropping that and they start creating LinkedIn profiles and they start building companies that focus on pen testing oh that wow focus on training that focus on developing and a lot of folks don't understand that there's a rich defense industrial base in Iran and there's some really smart well thought out ideas coming out of there. And so at this time, I think a lot of these folks recognize that, Hey, there's some, there's some money here and there's, you know, now you start swirling some patriotism and some money together. And, and, you know, there's, there's opportunity for folks who are entrepreneurial minded and they start building these companies. And that 
is really where things started because, you know, they needed to, one, have better defenses because they just got embarrassed with this malware that broke all of their their centrifuges. Mm -hmm. And they want to, you know, start to prevent those types of things from happening. So they got these defenses now. So now, you, you know, people are coming up with defensive strategies and selling that and businesses to that end. Was, it, was that self-motivated though? So think about this. They, so you're saying ultimately Stuxnet is kind of this, you know, this, this, this changing point right? and them saying, well, this hacktivist thing or these defacement, you know, uh, efforts are, they mean nothing in the grand scheme of what just, we just experienced with Stuxnet. Um, are these self-motivated initiatives to say, I'm no longer, I'm going to enable, I'm going to, you know, build a business off of this. I'm going to, you know, educate and build a better defense program for individuals? Or is this also um, promoted by the government in some capacity via, via uh, Iran's uh, intelligence arm? Yeah, I would say all of it. I, all I think it. that they, okay. you know, they yeah. understood that they, you know, and they, they did have capabilities from a, a, a offensive perspective within the government, you know, certainly before that. But I think this is when it became, you know, we need to, we need kind to of do eye opener. better. Yeah. yeah, yeah, major opener. And so then, you know, the first major thing that, that I would point to that came out of this was in 2012, a wiper called Shamoon mm, yeah, uh, was deployed, uh, I believe it was August 15th, 2012. And Shamoon was kind of the first major success that they had. Uh, they wiped something like 30,000 plus machines at targets in Saudi and, and, and the Emirates. And at the same time that this is happening, there's also this Operation Ababil, or what a lot of folks call bro, Brobot, because mm -hmm. there was a, a botnet that was called Brobot. And that was targeting US financial institutions. They were doing DDoS attacks. It was not you know super complex uh, in, in retrospects, but this was kind of two things that showcase that they went very quickly in 2010 from being the victim of Stuxnet to 2012. Now they're the perpetrators of attacks against you know regional foes and also uh, international foes like the United States. And um, I think this shows that their maturity and that they're thinking on that really started to to kind of it was it was experimental i would say this was kind of their first time kind of dipping their toe into the offensive cyber uh operational water and it you know arguably uh, had the impact that they that they had hoped for right I, I don't know exactly what that was there was conflict going on in the region at the time and i think that this was them demonstrating that they have the capability interesting I know, I know there was some activity, or we have some really rather great reports on um, on Refined Kitten, and I know that there was some Shamoon activity linked to some of their campaigns. I think we initially thought, or we initially associated them with um, espionage operations, and then Shamoon in itself was a fairly destructive you know, campaign that we saw yeah. them incorporate into some of their tradecraft. Uh, um, th that one really caught people by surprise. I remember I was at a, a conference in LA at the time, and uh, my phone blew up and it was uh, our CEO, George Kurtz, was pinging me and he was like, hey, do you know what's going on over there? Like, this is this is a big deal. Yeah. And 
yeah, so it was, um, you know, it, it was all hands on deck uh, when, when that happened. But that, I mean, that was really, you know, that that was the first time that I remember kind of being like, holy cow, that that got real, real yeah. quick. And so we're reeling from that. And then, you know, the next big thing that kind of happens on that timeline is 2014. Remember that one? What was 2014? Um, 2014 was an individual who owns a oh, lot of casinos yes, had yes, yeah. made a pretty disparaging comment about Iran. Yep. And there was an attack against his casinos as a result of that, a wiper attack. And so this is now kind of in line with, you know, 2014 was another year where we also saw the North Korean wiper attack against um uh, a number of different targets and that's when sony got hit as yeah, well remember that yeah. right so um this is kind of when offensive operations were were becoming more in vogue right yeah but at that same time period was really when the joint comprehensive plan of action started to become a, a negotiation and jcpoa or the the nuclear deal as most people would call it really kind of um caused them to focus on espionage and so 2013 now they're thinking about how can we use these cyber tools that we've shown we've demonstrated that we can use them for disruptive destructive purposes how can we use them to better get what we want sure so so converting so converting from a very destructive you know disruptive campaign into saying now we need to get into intelligence collection right Mm -hmm. and and start using this information for what are the drivers for, for collecting that? Is it for economic growth? Is it for furthering nuclear programs? Is it for, is it more a criminal aspect of it where they're selling data? Like, what does that look like for them? Well, so remember JCPOA, the, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, was, you know, basically providing economic benefit in exchange for a disruption of the nuclear research that they were conducting. Mm. You know, when you're conducting espionage around a negotiation, you want to understand the other side's talking points. You want to understand what their absolute, you know, red lines are going to be. You want to understand what their thinking is after a meeting. And so this is kind of now a a new period of of how can we leverage this tool Mm, more effectively. And we we have these intel gaps, right? We want to know what's the what what are the uh, the five plus one saying, like, what is everybody's thinking as as they walk away from these meetings? And before they walk into the meeting, what are they thinking, right? What, are they saying, you know, things about our diplomats? Are they um, going to have some, some wild thing that's going to catch us off guard? That would be very embarrassing. So we want to try to understand that. So we start to see more espionage coming out of Iran in the 2013 timeframe. Interesting. Yeah. And you know, I guess by the way that things unfolded in 2014, the Yemen conflict kicks off with the Houthis. And that kind of became a Iran, Saudi, Emirati proxy war in the region. And it's still, you know, ongoing to this day. We've seen missiles being launched out of Yemen um, that have been intercepted by, by the Saudis and by U.S. military in, in the last couple of weeks. So that that conflict hasn't necessarily gone away. When JCPOA got signed in 2015, it kind of changed the landscape from an Iran perspective because now they they don't want to antagonize the West. They've gotten effectively what they wanted, right? They've gotten 
a deal that enables them to take some of the constraints off the economy in Iran in exchange for restrictions on the nuclear research. And so they don't want to kind of disrupt that. Mm. And they've got this conflict in Yemen. Um, we also see you know, the, the conflict in Syria starting to pick up. Um, Arab Spring has started to occur uh, in, in more force in different places. And so there's a lot of regional activity occurring and that is where we start to see the Iranians focusing their efforts is regionally and you know Shamoon we we, could, we should talk about Shamoon for a, a second um do you remember any of the details of Shamoon in terms of its purpose you're saying or like the, any of the like little nuggets about the malware or anything no I'd have to dig into it um I know it was I know there was a wiper component to it there was, yeah, yeah. and it used a um, commercial driver to get access to the raw disk, right? So in order to wipe the hard drive, um, it used this LDOS um, driver. And LDOS is commercial, and so you you would get a license for it. And what we found when we investigated Shamoon was that they didn't buy a license. They got a two-week free trial. Oh, wow. And, uh, yeah, it was, it was, I remember we, we went to, to the company and like, we, we found the license key reverse engineering the malware. Well, in 2016, after the JCPOA is signed, Shamoon pops back up and let like, first of all, four years after this malware, um, you would think that it wouldn't work anymore, right? Like you would think that there would be protection in place from antivirus and things like that, sure. but, but there wasn't. And the Shamoon in 2016 was pretty interesting because rather than, what well, we'll call it Shamoon 2, rather than the approach that they used in the first Shamoon was effectively like a nuclear bomb, right? Like you, you hit one target and you cause as much damage as possible. In 2016, when Shamoon 2 comes back, it's not being leveraged as a one-time, one-and-done weapon. It's being used as part of a campaign. It's being used, uh, you know, against multiple targets oh, over so a much, period of time. So much broader reach attempt, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, what's interesting about that, and, and this is something that I think is really important for people to understand from a, a cyber conflict perspective, technical complexity is where most people, particularly people who are technical tend to think these things are notable, meaning, you know, the types of technical usage and how, how they're, they're using the operating system and how complex is the code. But I think this is a really interesting example because in 2016, when Shimun 2 occurs, it's literally the same code such that they had to change the system clock to go back to August 2012. Wait, you're talking about exploiting that same trial license? Yep. Mm -hmm. No. Literally. <laughs> wow. Wow. Did you ever do that? You remember like oh, when people totally used to do that, that stuff? Yeah. Change the system <laughs> totally, clock to... I've totally, I've totally milked a few trials. Uh. Yeah. So that's what they were doing. So their Shimun 2 got... Like they would set the system clock, deploy Shimun 2, and then run it so that it would... Um, uh, it, it would still have a valid license key. Oh, man. 
But what was interesting is that they took that same pay, the code. They changed the payload. In 2012, it was an upside-down uh, burning American flag that would overwrite all of the files. Oh, wow. Um, so that you know, they clearly had you know changed some things, but hey, if it works, why change it? If it ain't, to, ain't broke, it don't broke. fix it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so they used you know literally the same thing, but now they've used it against much wider set of targets over a period of time, and it, it's almost as if they and remember the conflict in Syria has been going on, and the Iranians are operating in close proximity to the Russians there. And are you know there's been lots of stories written about how the Iranians learned some of their tactics and techniques by watching the Russians in Syria, things like close air support and kinetic type things that they learned. But it's also as if they learned a lot from watching what Russia was doing in Ukraine from a cyber domain. In 2014, after Euromaidan, when Russia invaded Crimea, there was a series of uh, different kind of offensive cyber tools deployed against Ukraine and pretty much like constantly. Mm. And so it's almost like the Iranians watched that and, and who knows, maybe they actually worked with the Russians to kind of enhance and to, to mature their cyber thinking. But when 2016, when Shimun 2 pops up, they seemingly have learned quite a bit and they start using Shimun differently, same tool, but now they're using it against multiple targets over a period of time and it's really trying to disrupt life in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And it's trying to embarrass and to, to make some of the organizations look inept or unable mm. to defend themselves. Yeah. So they've really kind of matured their thinking. And this went on in 2016, and then they did it again in 2017 uh, with Shimun 3. So, well, you know, to kind of refresh here, because I, I realize we're, we're dumping a lot of knowledge, right? Yeah. You have... Yeah kind of the digital control from 2002 to 2008. You start to see the emergence of hacktivism and the green movement and Stuxnet become a major point shift in, in how they think about things. And then two years later, they start using their own capabilities with regards to Shamoon. And then two years after that with the casino. And then something changes in the world, which is the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action. And so now... What was a international, you know, capability and concern for them becomes more regional as they don't want to create static with the West. And they also have all of these regional conflicts that they want to kind of have some influence over. And that, you know, really was the big driver until 2018, which is when uh, the JCPOA kind of started to fall apart. And this is, you know, under the previous administration, they had a different policy with regards to Iran. And as they start ratcheting up the pressure, we start seeing uh, more espionage against the U.S. Treasury, espionage against scientific targets, espionage against the financial sector. So now, you know, they're like, okay, well, the nuclear deal's off. We're going to start doing more espionage and we're going to start trying to uh, there's a, a campaign called, uh, we call it um, Scholar Kitten. So Scholar Kitten, Silent Librarian, the Mabna Institute, I think that they were um, something that was uh, publicly outed uh, back a couple of years ago. So there's a lot of restrictions on what information can go to Iran, right? Things that you might get at a university you can't get in Iran. And so campaigns like that are really meant to kind of start bringing that know-how back to Iran so that they can start 
building up capabilities and building up their own research and and trying to do that type of work. Yeah, there was there was a there was an indictment for this group uh, yeah. back in 2020, right? And the report that we published references, um, or at least within the indictment report, it actually calls out a scholar kitten as a contractor that services the um, or Iran's Islamic Revolutionary yeah. uh, Guard Corps. Um, is that uh, are they a contractor or? If we if we go back to your reference of these groups that were former hacktivists that were more about defacements and they ultimately built out their own offensive and defensive security programs and consulting and training, would they ultimately be considered one of those you know one of those entities or one of those groups that kind of spun off on their own? Um, I, I think it was actually a research institute I, that I that see. was kind of behind that was, this, the, the Mapna Institute. Um, but they were basically stealing that stuff and then selling it domestically. Oh, interesting. Got yeah. It. So, but you know, but the point being that after JCPOA, the Iranians started kind of ratcheting up their espionage collection again because they were like, "All right, well, we're not getting what we want from them, so we're we're gonna we're gonna show back up and just steal whatever information we, we think we need." Got it. And 2019 was pretty tumultuous time period. Um, we start seeing the tanker wars that summer, uh, which was, you know, where they would interdict tankers uh, and both sides were interdicting tankers, I guess, but you, you, you might remember video footage of like Iranian helicopters and special forces going and seizing tankers that they yeah. were claiming were in their, their territory waters, yeah, the waters they would, yeah. yeah they'd, that's right. they'd pull them back and stuff yeah. like that so the, you know the the tension between the west and iran is starting to ratchet up and this is when we start to see a new series of activity that we are calling lock and leak in 2019 various groups like nemesis kitten um, and others started creating these fake hacktivist personas um you know i'll, I'll give you one that's been active just in the last week or so is uh, there's something called uh, Yar Gom Nam Cyber Team, which is something we associate with Haywire Kitten. There's also Hackers of Savior um, that's associated with that. Um, there's groups like Black Shadow, which is associated with what we call Spectral Kitten. Um, and so there's all of these kind of fake hacktivist uh, personas that are being used to conduct these fake you know, in many cases, it looked like ransomware. Okay. Uh, but but the goal wasn't actually to make money at that time by these groups. It was really to get in and do a lock where they deploy something that looks like ransomware to make the organization think that they've been hit with ransomware. They're also stealing a bunch of information and then they leak it through this fake hacktivist persona, which, you know, I think is meant to kind of delegitimize the target, oh, well. embarrass yeah. them, make them yeah. look like they're incompetent. And they were doing this against a lot of organizations in Israel and the United States. And so they were kind of back to their their old tricks in 2019, 2020. And you know, then we see the targeted killing of General Qassam Soleimani in January of 2020. And the things ratchet back up after that. And then Yeah, that was a rocket kitten campaign, if I'm not mistaken. Uh after the death of the general. I I think I don't remember exactly. Yeah. It doesn't sound like rocket kitten, but uh, there was there was some rockets fired at U.S. bases <laughs> yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but there was uh, a whole series of of activity that kind of spun up, and you started seeing 
uh, Suleimani being effectively galvanized as a martyr at that point. A lot of the hacktivists were kind of putting pictures of him up, and you know there was a lot of uh, a lot of back and forth. And then the pandemic hit, and that kind of disrupted you know everything, right? Because th- this is January 2020, okay. And by March, yeah. you know now yeah. you've got you know everybody focused on the pandemic, and certainly uh, everybody wanted to build their own domestic. Uh, vaccine, you know, throughout 2020, 2021, you start to see a lot of targeting of healthcare. So that that kind of put a break, right? Put a pin in what was an escalating series of tensions starting in 2019. Uh-huh. Oh. And then, you know, coming into kind of the last two years, uh, one of the big things that happened last September, just over a year ago now, was a wiper attack or disruptive attack against um, Albania. I do remember that. Yeah. yeah, and so that was because of a group um, that had effectively taken up residence in uh, Albania or had been given uh, some degree of uh, autonomy or, or legitimacy there. So Mojahedin uh, Kalk, M-E-K, I probably butchered that, but I always just call it M-E-K yeah. uh, as a non-Farsi uh, era, uh, linguist. So M-E-K is a group that was launched right around probably, I think it was in the late 60s, but it, it got banned in Iran in the 80s because you know it was effectively against the Islamic uh, revolution, right? So the uh, MEK is now a dissident organization and uh, political advocacy group, which was headquartered in Albania. Yeah. But um, you know, at the end of the day, what happened was Iran attacked Albania because they were unhappy about MEK operating there. And that was kind of a, a big deal because Albania cut relations with Iran, right? That that might be the first time that anybody has cut diplomatic relations as a result of a cyber attack. Yeah, yeah, that was back in, um, um, I think was it twenty twenty two where I think there was another campaign that Iran launched uh, against the government of Albania, and I know that there CISA actually has an interesting write up of this attack where some of the TTPs are actually published. We have a really good write-up in one of our reports as well. Um, but I was just very curious, um, you know, on Albania's response to it. You're saying it's kind of the first. Why are we not seeing more of that? More, uh, more diplomatic. You know, diplomatic cut, you know, ties being cut. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, broadly speaking, that cyber is not something that is really fully comprehended from an international norms perspective. And we're still kind of figuring that stuff out. I remember after the, um, not Petia. Um, oh, yeah, not Petia. Yeah, so yeah. If, if you think back to not Petia, after not Petia, there was discussion by folks from NATO about did that trigger Article 5, the mutual defense clause, right? So I don't think anybody at that point was willing to go to war over some fake ransomware. Mm-hmm. But, you know, those are the types of conversations that start to come up. And so, again, Albania... Um, was another interesting discussion point around what is the appropriate response to a cyber attack. Exactly. Yeah. Albania being a NATO member, uh, you know, it becomes like, was that an attack that, in, I don't remember anybody mentioning a mutual defense clause after the Albania attack, let's put it that way. <laughs> but uh, after the Napeti attack, there was discussion around that. So, you know, I think, you know, we just, from an international norms perspective, there's really, not a clear 
uh, a clear response to cyber, which I think makes sense. You know, when you think about cyber, a lot of folks tend to think cyber is its own thing. And they're like, oh, we need a cyber Geneva convention or we need some sort of like normal uh, normalization or cyber norms or red lines or what, like, how do we as an international community react to cyber? The challenge with that, though, is that cyber is a component of diplomacy and espionage and warfare. And it, it, it doesn't just exist as one thing. It's not like chemical weapons where you could say, you know, there's, there's no acceptable use of chemical weapons, right? Once you define something as a chemical weapon. And so with, with cyber, I, I think it's problematic because it is part of espionage. It's a technique yeah. for how countries conduct espionage. And you have to be real careful when you start to get into those red lines and, and international conventions around cyber because it's not just one thing. It's yeah, exactly. many things. Yeah. I mean, according uh, that, that's an interesting point because it, it is many things. And you mentioned, yeah, there are no good use cases for uh, for biologics and, you know, nuclear weapons and, you know, so forth. And But there is an espionage component of cyber that every country adopts in some capacity. But then, you know, there's this really interesting article published by the New York Times, and you're actually cited in this in addition to the likes of Microsoft and Checkpoint on some of Iran's recent um, cyber campaigns. And there's a quote by uh, Brig General Mohammad Reza Ashtiani, and he's referencing uh, the evolution and kind of the maturity of their cyber program. And he says specifically that our enemies know that if they make one mistake, the Islamic Republic of Iran will respond with force. And this is very specific, you know, also to some of their um, their, their defenses as it relates to cyber. So I'm very curious, like, how does the world receive that type of sentiment, right, when we're talking about cyber? Because you're right, it, there is the espionage component that is a little less harmful, but then there's obviously an impact of, you know, systems, disruptions of systems. What happens when a hospital is impacted by, as, as, as collateral damage with respect to a campaign where now patient systems are impacted and someone's attached to a device that is impacting their health, or maybe there's a death as a result of that. I mean, now we're talking about you know, is that an act of war? And I know that I'm opening up a bit of a can of worms here, but I'm very curious about what, you know, where policies go when it comes to cyber, because I think there could be, I think there's absolutely opportunity for implications when it comes to, you know, impacting civilians, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, thankfully, I don't think that there's been too many instances of that. And Not yet, ransomware. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Yeah. has kind of demonstrated that um, that's not an everyday concern. I think there's been maybe one case allegedly where somebody expired on the way to the hospital because they had to be redirected because the hospital was closed because of a ransomware attack. But, you know, I, I think that there's very few and far between examples of that. Um, the reality, though, is that, you know, every day there's cyber intrusion for espionage purposes. Yeah. Uh, so it, it it does become an interesting discussion point, and you know I I think also how we define a, attack against critical infrastructure. Microsoft had some blog posts recently where they were trying to claim that there's I think they said like forty percent of all uh, cyber activity involved critical infrastructure, but like was it ransomware at something that you deemed to be critical, you know, infrastructure, or was it a specific attack against critical infrastructure? Sure. My point yeah. being the intention of the attack matters, right? If it, like Colonial Pipeline is one that everybody always likes to reference, but, um, you know, I don't I don't know that Colonial Pipeline was anything other than another ransomware target. The fact that gas flow is disrupted on the East Coast of the United States 
you know, and, and arguably like, was that impacted by the ransomware or was that uh, something that the company did, you know, def- defensively because they were worried about, you know, some issue. Um, so uh, again, like yeah. it, it, it's, it's a lot of not parts. cut yeah. and dry. Yeah. Yeah. It's a lot of moving parts. That makes sense. Yeah. yeah and then, you know, to round it out, what's going on with Iran today, um, you know, Iran and Saudi restored some diplomatic relations recently. Uh, Iran has been involved in supporting Russia with drone deliveries and weapons deliveries. Um, and then the conflict in, in Israel in the last month or so has really kind of created a, a whole new dynamic where we're starting to see some of these cyber operators associated with Iran are now getting involved in that conflict. And, you know, that conflict may start in Israel uh, as it pertains to the, um, the horrific events of uh, 7 October. But as more and more time goes on and we've got two carrier strike groups there and we've got, um, you know, boots on the ground trying to help with hostage rescue situations, it's increasingly looking as if some of these groups will start targeting the West from a cyber perspective, because one of the things that you can do is to kind of start using those attacks to bring visibility to their points or, or to the things that they think that, you know, people in the U S need to be aware of through hacktivism, uh, and also disruptive attacks meant to kind of slow down any support that's being leveraged to that region. Yeah. And you're saying these, and these attacks to the West are, they, they lack prejudice, right? They're attacking financials, they're attacking NGOs, defense contractors, um, you know, they aren't necessarily just focusing on a specific industry. Is that correct? Correct assessment? Yeah, I mean, I think right now it's been critical infrastructure, mm-hmm. ironically, right? So like there's been, there's a group, for example, that is associated with Haywire Kitten. It's mm-hmm. a hacktivist uh, persona that they use called the Yara Gum, Gumnam Cyber Team. And they leaked video footage from a small U.S. airport. Um did they have access or did they use something like Shodan or, or something to find an open, you know, camera? Yeah. But again, part of this also, uh, you know, something we didn't talk about yet was the, um, how, how they use information operations, right? Disinformation, Mm -hmm. misinformation. I left out that in 2020, we saw them create that fake proud boy video that tried to show the proud boys supporting president Trump. Uh, so, you know, I'd say that that was kind of a nascent, uh, attempt at conducting a um, disinformation, misinformation operation, but you can't rule them out doing that as well. So we understand the evolution of Iran, where they started, um, this hacktivist type of, of of approach to things, and you know they've evolved, and uh, they are not to be underestimated, as I mentioned earlier. Um, tell me a little bit about where Iran is now with respect to... Um, that maturity and who they're attacking and where they are today and where we should expect to see them in the future. Yeah. Uh, get out my crystal ball here. Um, <laughs> so, look, I, I think, you know, we're definitely going to continue to see them operating, right? They've mm-hmm. built the capabilities. There's plenty of demonstrated success. Uh, I think that they've been able to show. Um, I think we'll continue to see espionage, particularly going into this election cycle, right? Let's, let's not forget that it's an election year coming up and that um, they, they certainly have interest in who gets elected to various offices, not just the presidency here. Um, they've demonstrated disinformation, misinformation. We're likely to continue to see that evolve. 
Uh, certainly things like artificial intelligence and machine learning are going to be huge game changers in terms of disinformation, misinformation. We're already seeing lots of it in the, the conflict right now in Gaza. And so, you know, these things are really starting to, to factor into the public discourse, and it's something we need to be very careful about. And clearly, uh, Iran has the intent in terms of what they did during the 2020 election to do these type of things. And it's probably also a matter of, you know, the capability, and they certainly have that as well. So I think we'll see more of that. And then, you know, if, if there's going to be disruptive attacks, I imagine we'll be seeing some of these lock and leak style attacks targeting Western targets as they want to disrupt and delegitimize and embarrass the, uh, the organizations in, in the West, particularly here in the United States. And then uh, there's always the wild card, right, which is uh, who knows what, what, what's going to happen. You know, I have I think every year since 20. 20 we've had the kind of the 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 bingo card of what kind of crazy things can happen next and sure yeah yeah who who knows what uh where where the world goes on this this wild ride we're on here no agreed i think we should also do another episode that focuses on disinformation campaigns across the globe right and and some of the geopolitics that are tied to um those the what we've seen in the past and what we can anticipate in the future now with ai being so easily accessible across you know any end user so um you heard it here you know iran as this nation emerges stronger on the political front uh, so does their presence in the digital realm and uh we are going to continue to navigate this intricate web of cyber attacks and defense tactics and the silent battles that shape the cyberspace we know today so uh, you just heard it here, another episode of the Adversary Universe podcast that was Adam Myers covering Iran and a lot of the tradecraft and history behind their cyber programs. I'm Christian Rodriguez. We will catch you on the next episode. Thanks so much for listening to this episode. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to our podcast and head over to CrowdStrike.com forward slash adversaries to learn more about the many bad guys we track. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time on the Adversary Universe Podcast. This is the Adversary Universe Podcast.